Good morning. Great to be with you again and to continue through our series this morning. We are entering this morning um, on a journey that I believe will um, has the potential to do a deep work in our hearts and in our minds, and that is the journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning we're going to begin by asking the question, who is blessed by God? Who is blessed by God? Before we get started, let's pray together. Lord, we do need a big, mighty God. Lord, these situations that have been mentioned need a big, mighty God. We need one this day, Lord, to be who you've called us to be. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for changing us. Thank you for filling us with your Holy Spirit, for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light, for granting us citizenship into your heavenly kingdom. And I pray you would help us to live as those who belong to another world. I pray you would uh, do a deep work in us, Lord, beginning today. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. And as I said, we begin this week to look at the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest man who ever lived. And he has something to say to his people. What is the Sermon on the Mount? There have been lots of interesting takes on that throughout the years. Views have ranged from a social social gospel kind of take, where the Sermon on the Mount is basically just uh, ways that we can make the world a better place, um, often underemphasizing the need for personal repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, To others, some have even said that the sermon isn't even for Christians, but for Jews in the millennial kingdom. I'm not going to try to refute all these things. What I'm just going to do is tell you what I'm pretty sure it is. The Sermon on the Mount tells us who citizens of Christ's kingdom are and how they are to live. It is not keep these rules so that you can get to heaven. Rather, it is... This is what your heart is like, and this is how you'll want to live when heaven has already dawned in you. So the Sermon on the Mount is not first a prescription for societal good, nor is it a to-do list for the legalist. Rather, it is is a description of the heart and life of one who has seen Jesus with eyes of faith, and who have seen their desperate need of his forgiveness and found it in him more than they could possibly imagine, and now wants more than anything to know him and to follow him and to honor him with their lives. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And if we will read it and apply it and believe it and trust it and be it in this world, we'll see the kingdom of God come in our hearts and in this community in ways that we can't even imagine. 
And the sermon begins with the Beatitudes, which means uh, their, their blessings, their pronouncements of blessings. And so one of the things we have to note when, before we even begin the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is note how it begins. Because it begins, it, it, does, it doesn't begin with telling us to do anything. Notice that. It's, it doesn't begin by telling us to do anything. It begins by telling us who is blessed by God. Who is blessed by God. Being a Christian is not first things that we do. It's first something that we are. Something that God has made us by His Spirit. It's the posture of the heart toward a great God. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning as we try to answer part one of this question. Who is blessed by God? Matthew chapter 5. And so now if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 1 to verse 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word of God. You may be seated. So, very simple this morning. Very simple. Who is blessed by God? Number one, the poor in spirit. Number two, the mourning. And number three, the meek. Who is blessed by God? The poor in spirit, the mourning, and the meek. Number one, the poor in spirit is blessed by God. This is the first blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who gets Who gets into the kingdom of heaven? Those who are poor in spirit. This is first, I believe, because it is utterly foundational. It's really one of the foundations of of everything else, the foundation of the Christian life. The one who gets the kingdom of heaven, who gets to be part of Christ's eternal kingdom, when he brings heaven down to earth and judges his enemies and makes all things new, Those who get that kingdom is the poor in spirit. Now, what does it mean to be the poor in spirit? Poor in spirit speaks to one's humility. It speaks to one's personal awareness of our unworthiness for the kingdom of God. You see, what's astounding about this this reality is that It's only those who know deep down in their hearts that they are unworthy for the kingdom of God that actually get it. You see that? That's astounding. Why is it astounding? Because none, I'm just making this up, nine nine out of the ten people that you meet and you ask them if they... Will they go to heaven? They'll say, yes. You ask them why. They'll say, well, because I was a pretty good person. 
And that answer shows what? That they don't get it. There will not be a single person in heaven who deserves to be there. And Jesus says it's the only people who have the spiritual awareness to see that they don't deserve to be there that get to go. Who feel their unworthiness for the kingdom of heaven. Who know that who have that blessed self-awareness to see that apart from God, they're lost, they're hopeless, they're ruined. And we see this all over the Bible. Poverty in spirit is Isaiah. When he sees God Almighty on his throne. And it says that the robe, the the train of his robe fills the temple. And the seraphim are crying out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And at And the temple is filled with smoke. And at the cries of the angel, the the foundations of the temple shake and tremor at their cries of the holiness of God. And Isaiah looks upon the throne in Isaiah 6, 5. And he says, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. and, And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. What is that? It's, it's poverty of spirit. It's an utter awareness that if he got what he deserved, he'd be ruined. And he sees it and he feels it and he cries a woe upon himself because of it. Poverty in spirit is Zacchaeus who couldn't believe that Jesus would want to come into his house when he had wronged so many people. But yet, Jesus came and said, I must go to your house. And after the conversation, Zacchaeus said, Behold, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, anything I pay it back, I restore it fourfold. That's the heart of a man who felt his unworthiness that Christ should receive him. But he did. Poverty in spirit is the centurion who had more faith than all the Jews, who had a sick servant, who when Jesus came, he said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Poverty in spirit is Peter, who saw Jesus' power in his boat, and he fell down at Jesus' knees, Luke 5, 8, and said, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Martin Lord Jones said that the way to become poor in spirit is to look at God. To look at God. If you read the Bible, if you see, if you read it any place where somebody actually came to a clear understanding and a clear vision, if you will, of the God that they were before, in every single case, it ruins them. And they express their unworthiness to be in God's presence because this is what Jesus said, right? In Mark 2, 17, this is, what he, this, is what, this is who he came for. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I, have not, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Remember what he's saying. He's not saying that there actually are truly righteous people. There aren't. Apostle Paul says, none is righteous. No, not one. 
But the difference is that not everybody realizes that they're sick when they are. They're spiritually dead on the inside. And so Jesus came not for people who think they're healthy. He came for people who know they're sick. Jesus didn't, came, didn't come for people who think they're righteous. He came for people who knew that they were unrighteous, who know that they're a sinner and unworthy of his grace and mercy. And that's the glory of it. That's the glory of it. It's just absolutely astounding. The only, the only people who can't be saved are the ones who don't think they need saving. But if you would just come and humble yourself and acknowledge the, the poverty of your soul, the guilt of your sin and your desperate need of salvation, it is precisely that person who sees their, how much they don't deserve Christ's mercy who will receive it, whom he delights to forgive. This is perfectly illustrated in Luke 18. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, not like extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, even like this Democrat. Watch out. You hear me? Watch out. You don't. Let me finish the story. You don't want to be like him. You don't want to be self righteous. Like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. I go to church, I vote straight ticket. But these tax collector, what, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is poverty of soul. Do you know and feel your unworthiness for the grace of God this morning? If you do, then bless God, you have his grace. When we see just how much it is that we don't deserve the kingdom, but we come to Jesus in faith, pleading for mercy, not looking condescendingly on others, doesn't mean we can't have convictions about things, but it means that we just understand that the greatest, the sin that most deeply threatens ourselves is nobody else's sin is my sin. The sin that creates the greatest problem in my life is no one else's, it's mine. And that deep down, regardless of what anyone else deserves, I know that this is true. I don't deserve the kingdom of God. But if we go to Christ in faith, believing in who he is and is what he has done, his death, his, his life, his death, his resurrection from the dead, doing everything necessary so that we could be forgiven of our sins, and we come to him in faith, he will freely extend that grace to us. So let us never look condescendingly on others. Beware of ever saying, that would never happen to me. I would never do that. Watch out. If not for the grace of God, you'd already be there. So you better thank God for his work in your life.
If not for the grace of God, we would be right there. So let us be humble children in the presence of our Father and King. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So number one, God blesses the poor in spirit. Number two, God blesses the mourning. God blesses the mourning. And so we only have to get two in to see a pattern emerging. We see that the kingdom life is the exact opposite of worldly life. You see, you know, in the world, people, people think like this. Blessed are the confident. Blessed are the happy. Blessed are the strong and assertive. Blessed are the full. Blessed are those who are loved by this world. We think that's blessedness. Jesus says, no, it's not true. Kingdom life, true life, says that blessedness, true blessedness, comes with lowliness now, humility now, mourning now, hunger and thirsting now, persecution now, but unspeakable joy forever in the presence of the king. You see, the kingdom of heaven is the opposite of the world. The way up is down. The least shall be the greatest. The first shall be the last. Jesus Jesus will be the greatest person forever and all of eternity because nobody made himself so low as to bear the sins of others on himself. The only sinless one who ever lived. So that we might be forgiven. This is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of the cross. This is Jesus' way. Jesus chose the way of the cross to achieve the crown. And if we would follow him, then Jesus said, we must take up our own cross. If we would share in his crown. And, that's, and this is the blessing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. What kind of mourning is Jesus speaking of? Well, I I think it's this. In the context of Jesus' message, overarching message of repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, and of some Old Testament background we're going to talk about a little bit later, I believe that the kingdom life that he's talking about, the mourning that he's talking about, is mourning over our sin. That's the preeminent type of mourning that a kingdom citizen has. Nothing threatens our lives and our destinies more than our own sin. So we should grieve over our sin. We should weep over our sin. Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It, It won't matter how much we've been wronged if in the end, if we stand before Christ still in our own unforgiven sin. So let us mourn for our sin, weep and agonize over our rebellion and look to Christ in faith. You know, it's good from time to time. We don't need to wallow in our sin. We don't need to wallow as if if Christ's blood isn't sufficient to cleanse us from all of our sin. It is. But at the same time, we don't need to be so quick to jump to Christ's forgiveness that we don't feel the proper weight of our sin when we sin. It's good, to just, it's good to think about and reflect about what it means to rebel against the Most High God. 
to consciously make a decision to say, yes, God Almighty, I know you said this, but I'm going to do this. And to feel the weight of that for a moment so that we can actually feel for a second what an astounding thing it is then that God would forgive us. That God would have mercy on us. When David did the unbelievable thing that he did, when he committed adultery with a woman and then covered it up by murdering her husband. But if you, but you, but you go read Psalm 51 and you see that he was just in utter agony of what he, of what he had done. That's what we're to experience when we weep over our sin. We need to weep, agonize over our sin. This is part, I think, of the Old Testament background. Uh, uh, this, this beatitude is part of the Old Testament background of mourning and comfort that we see in the Bible. In, in the Old Testament, Israel was punished for their hard-hearted, stiff-necked, continual rebellion against God. They were given the, they were given the land, the land of promise. But they rebelled. They broke the covenant that they were supposed to keep between them and God. And their punishment climaxed in the Assyrian and then ultimately the ba- uh, Babylonian, in- Babylonian invasions, which ended up in the destruction of Jerusalem itself, the exile of God's people from the land of Israel because of their sin. Because of their sin. And remember, there's a whole book dedicated to that, the book of Jeremiah, who was alive when Jerusalem was destroyed. And he wrote a whole book called Lamentations. Doing what? Weeping over the sins of Israel because she's getting what she deserved for her sins. And Isaiah prophesying of this well before the Babylonian captivity. There's a, there's a, there's a turning point there in the book of Isaiah. And uh, Hezekiah had been sick, and he, he got well, and the, the, the Babylonians sent an envoy. This, this is long before the Babylonian invasion. The Babylonians sent an envoy to you know, express their you know, happiness that he got better. And Hezekiah, in a moment of pride, if you remember, he goes and he shows the Babylonian envoy everything in their kingdom, all their treasures, all the treasure stores, the beauty of the temple. This is what Isaiah said in Isaiah 39, at the end of Isaiah 39. Isaiah said, Behold, the days are coming, Hezekiah, when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day, because remember, he just showed it all off. He said, Thou shalt be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. You see that? What is it? What is it? It's a prophecy. It's a prophecy of the Babylonian uh, captivity, which would happen uh, over a hundred years after that. Okay, and so, it, and then in Isaiah's mind, so think Isaiah is saying this, and then it, if you read from Isaiah thirty-nine into Isaiah forty, you can almost feel Isaiah as he contemplates this vision that he's seeing. Babylon is coming. 
one day, and they're going to utterly destroy Jerusalem. The temple, the beautiful temple that they have will be, every stone will be thrown down. All the beautiful, all the gold will be stripped and be taken away and carried off. All the people, the people will be obliterated. Many of them will be killed. The ones that aren't killed will be carried off and chained up and, and walked all the way to Babylon. And it's like Isaiah can like look off into the future and see, and see this judgment the, the very sons of Hezekiah being eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And he sees the greatness of this judgment. And then at the end of Isaiah 39, it immediately slides into Isaiah 40. Verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. That she, will, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You see, Isaiah is contemplating the judgment of Israel for her sins. And yet, as he, even, as he contemplates that, immediately after that, he receives this word from God, comfort, comfort my people. What is the comfort that Israel will ultimately receive? What's the ultimate comfort that anybody could receive? Our iniquities are pardoned. Our sins are forgiven. And get this, you, you, you recognize verse 3. How will their sins be forgiven? Verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. We already read about that in Matthew. Who's the voice in the wilderness? John the Baptist. Cry out, John. Her iniquities are pardoned. Comfort, comfort my people. Her iniquities are pardoned. So mourn now. Yes, let us mourn now over the weight of our sin. Because if we mourn over our sin now, we will be comforted. Comforted with the comfort that only Christ can give. The comfort of forgiven sin. Pardoned iniquity. He will comfort us. He will comfort us. If we mourn over our sin. Christ has come to forgive us of our sin. To restore us from the exile. To bring us back to Eden. To know and worship him. And so if there's some sin in your life this morning. Don't nurture it. Weep over it. Weep over it. Mourn that you may be comforted. And know how great the comfort will be when we mourn over our sin. So who does God bless? The poor in spirit, the mourning. And finally, number three, God blesses the meek. God blesses the meek. They're blessed because, Jesus said, they will inherit the earth. Who are the meek? We don't use this word very much. It's kind of hard to define. It relates to being humble, but it also carries the meaning of gentleness. Jesus was the epitome of weakness, and the same word Jesus uses of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, when Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. It's the same word, gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest 
for your soul. Meek, to be meek is a kind of humility. Sometimes we use it negatively when we talk about meekness as a, shy, as a shyness or, or timidity or, or even weakness. But meekness is not weakness. We must not confuse uh, them here. What is being said is that a citizen of Christ's kingdom is gentle and lowly of heart like his Savior is. He's meek. If we want to know meekness, we have to look at Jesus. Jesus was gentle and lowly of heart, but he wasn't a pushover. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees to their face. He, like John the Baptist, called them a brood of vipers. He turned over tables in the temple. He was a man of courage and a man of conviction, but he also wasn't pretentious. He didn't, have, he didn't put on airs. He wasn't proud or condescending. He wasn't harsh or abusive. Jesus possessed omnipotence, but he possessed it quietly. That's astounding. Has it never astounded you that the same Jesus who could command a storm allowed himself to be crucified by people he created? Has it never astounded you that this same Jesus who could heal the sick and who could raise the dead and who could have called down 12 legions of angels to obliterate the mob that would unjustly arrest him and he didn't do it? but allowed himself to suffer wrong? How do you explain that? Meekness. Gentleness. Remember the Samaritan village that rejected Jesus when he had set his face to go to Jerusalem? And James and John were so angry that they had disrespected their master that they asked him if they could call down fire from heaven, and Jesus rebukes them and not the Samaritans. And Jesus just stands up and he walks on by to another village. Why would Jesus put up with that? Jesus, the son of God incarnate, had people spit in his face. And he did nothing. What is it? Jesus, he just... What did he do? He just hung there on the cross and bore the wrath of God to his people so that we might be saved. What is this? It is meekness. It is gentleness. It is quiet strength. It is knowing so clearly the good that God has called you to do that you refuse to let the evil of others cause you to be turned away from it. Returning good for evil. Being gentle at heart. It is said of Jesus that a bruised reed he wouldn't break, that a smoldering wick he wouldn't quench. Our king is an all-powerfully meek king. And if we're his people, we must be a meek people too, quiet in strength, gentle in demeanor, returning evil with good, 
turning the other cheek, refusing to let the evil and slander of others drag us into the same filth. Walking past an offense to keep heading toward the prize. What is that? It's meekness. It's not weakness. Weakness is being so high on yourself that you can't stand the thought that somebody would disrespect you. Meekness is understanding it doesn't matter what anybody thinks about me except what God thinks about me. So I'm going to keep my eyes on the prize. I don't care what anybody else has to say about me. I got a mission to accomplish. I got a father to please. I got a God to glorify. Walking past an offense to keep heading towards the prize. It's not weakness, it's quiet strength. It's the ability, it's the the freedom from self that comes with genuine humility where we just simply recognize it's not about me, it's about Jesus Christ. And so i got to do everything I can to glorify his name with the short time that I've been given. And I'm not going to let simple petty things like the opinions of others and the slander of others and the misdeeds of others distract me from that goal. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does that mean? What does it mean to inherit the earth? I mean, that's astounding. What does Jesus mean by that? That's a huge claim, isn't it? To get the full picture, you have to go back to the beginning, like we often do. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave the earth to man in the beginning. The earth was supposed to belong to us all along. It was given by God to man as our inheritance, as his children. From what? From the very beginning. We were made to rule earth for God and for his kingdom and for his glory. But of course we fell. And when Adam and Eve sinned, you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? What happened? They were exiled from it. Sounds familiar? Disobedience means what? Kicked out of the land of promise that was given to them. That's the consequence of sin. But fast forward to Abraham. What did God promise Abraham? A land. A land. To do what? Where God would be their people and, 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 and he would be their God. I mean, they would be his people and, and he would be their God, right? Where? In the land. The kingdom of Israel was supposed to be what? A miniature kingdom of God that was supposed to display to the nations what the glory of God looked like. But get this, God's covenant with Abraham pointed to something greater. That's why we... That's why we got to read the Bible and think deeply about it and read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, which we talked about in uh, my, my class this morning, if you're interested in that kind of thing. What did, did you know in Romans 4.13, listen to what Paul says. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. You see what Paul is saying there? He's saying that God's promise to Abraham was more than just the land of Israel. It pointed to something greater. God's promise to Abraham was the world. 
Why? Because Israel pointed to something greater than itself. The day when not just Israel would submit to God, but when the whole world would submit to God. When the whole world would become the kingdom of God. When Jesus, when Jesus by his spirit, through the proclamation of the gospel, would make citizens of the kingdom of heaven out of where? Out of every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. So that the whole world will become the kingdom of God. Because that's what it was supposed to be from the beginning. And that's the destiny that we are destined for. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The meek shall inherit the earth. When it's all said and done and Jesus Christ returns and he judges his enemies... And he redeems his people. And he, this world is <laughs> purged by fire, Peter says. And then a new heaven and a new earth is born. And who shall dwell there? The meek. It will belong to them. Because they shared in the meekness of their Savior. So who is blessed by God? Number one, the poor in spirit. Number two, the mourning. And number three, the meek. Church, let's be poor in spirit. Church, let's mourn our sin. Church, let's be meek for Jesus. The way up is down. The way high is low. The first shall be last. The least shall be the greatest. Let's be least for our Savior. Let's bring his kingdom come. And as I close this morning, I don't know, maybe there's someone here this morning who has seen that they haven't been poor in spirit. But maybe this morning God has showed you that you are unworthy of the kingdom of God. If that's you, I've got good news. I've got good news. If you'll mourn over your sins this morning, if you acknowledge your unworthiness for the kingdom of heaven, then Jesus Christ who lived, who died, and who rose again will be pleased to give the kingdom to you. If you will come to him by faith. And so as we respond, we're going to sing a song of decision. It's your opportunity to respond. If the Lord has spoken to you, this altar is open. If you'd like to pray with me, I'd be glad to do that. If you'd like to know how you can follow Christ, you can come right up here, put a hand on my shoulder and say, Pastor Shad, I want to follow Christ. However the Lord is speaking, you respond today. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you.